how are we able to accomplish all of the things that we're setting out for ourselves? And I really think this is a bigger issue than people are talking about. It's not just burnout. Go on a vacation, everyone says, take a sabbatical, but those same capacity issues are there regardless. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Kate Luzio, founder and CEO of Luminary, a membership-based career and personal growth platform. Luminary's mission is to uplift and support women through all phases of their professional journey. And Kate has built an incredible community through content, collaboration, and connection. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Kate, welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. It's so great to have you on with us. I'm so excited to be here, Sam. So you are an entrepreneur and you have a long career in business. So let's start out by having you tell our audience what your career journey has been to date. Accidental banker. I started my career in nonprofit, then went into tech. It was the original internet boom. And I was quite young and got involved in working at a tech startup, had the opportunity to go and move to China for on and off for two years, came back, got my master's in international relations and got recruited into a bank never thinking that's what I would end up doing. I sort of kind of said the, why me? And I remember the gentleman that was recruiting said, you have a great profile. And I had never heard that term. I was in my twenties and heard, what does that mean a profile? And he said, we love your international experience. You seem like you're pretty well-rounded. We can teach you all the technical stuff. And I thought, okay, I'll do this for a couple of years, see how it goes. And then I ended up almost 20 years later from Bank of America to a very long stint at J.P. Morgan Chase and then HSBC and realized in sort of the 2018 timeframe that on the side of my desk had been doing a lot around investing in women and talent development and certainly our women's networks. I was part of the original Women on the Move at J.P. Morgan Chase, knew that I wanted to do something with bigger impact. I just wasn't seeing the numbers and the, the needle move fast enough for me from uh, women. And when I kind of picked my head up, it wasn't just finance. It wasn't just banking. And there were so many great programs. It just wasn't moving the way I wanted to see it move. And I had had a very accelerated career. And so I decided that I would try to build it myself and wrote a business plan, quit my job, by the way. I think that's really important. I didn't have the idea when I quit my job. I just had talked to a mentor of mine at J.P. Morgan Chase, and he said, I think you need to give yourself some space and think about what it is you really want to do. I had never had someone say that because I was on that corporate ladder and that was okay. I loved it. And then once I did give myself some space, I was able to really think about where I saw the future of women in the workforce. Everyone from that traditional corporate space through entrepreneurship to those in transition. And so launched Luminary in the beginning of 2019. And it's been a really heck of a roller coaster for the last four years. It's so interesting that you quit without having the idea. Many people would wait until they had an idea or even wait until they had some sort of part of the business launched because it's a lot less risky. So tell me about that decision to just quit and just give yourself the time to do that because I think that is gutsy. I had the extraordinary privilege and opportunity to work for three great financial institutions. I learned from a very young age to save and I do not have children. I planned on having children. And I remember when I graduated from college, my father said, you better start saving for those kids' educations because we gave you this great opportunity and paid for yours. And so I did, I started saving and then went on as many women do the fertility journey that just didn't work out for me. 
And so I had a lot of money saved. And the same mentor said, well, why don't you put it to use? I'm 100% in on everything that I do. And so there was no way I would have ever been able to think of an idea. There's just no way. And really, I actually quit because I thought I was going to go do something completely different. And then as soon as I quit, all the banks started calling. They were like, you're a free agent. I don't have to buy you out. And I said, I don't want to just trade this one big bank for the other. And that gave me the space to think about what else was out there. And I did start talking in different industries and some of my clients. And then left an event and thought that didn't have much impact for me as a senior woman. What could I do? And then I called my boyfriend and said all of these things. And he said, you have an idea. Why don't you write it down? Two weeks later, had a business plan. But none of that I could have done, Sam, without the 20 plus years in corporate America, particularly in what I learned in financial services, because I had the opportunity to understand how to build a business and to manage a PL and to build teams and to make tough decisions. So all of that really helped prepare me. But I will tell you that two months between not having a job and writing the business plan were some of the scariest, even though I had the safety net of having savings. But I put a lot of those savings into building the business because I self-funded. And so when you thought about what Luminary became and knowing that you had seen so much in your career, how did you gravitate toward what Luminary ultimately is right now? And maybe you should take a minute to just tell us, so what is Luminary? First and foremost, we're a career and personal and professional growth platform. Our goal is to advance women in the workforce regardless of their professional journey and regardless of where they're at along that journey. There is plenty out there that's geared towards senior women or millennials or just bankers, and all of those should coexist, right? There's plenty of women to support and help, but I really wanted to create a space physically and now also virtually for women to thrive and to create new connections and to learn new businesses and to really, really, really level up and upskill. That physical space here in New York City was thriving after one year, and we were doing upwards of 200 events, workshops, programs in that first year. Our goal was to advance women in the workforce and do that by not excluding men. So we welcome all genders. It's a very important part of our mission because we can't do this alone. The future of women, the future of women in the workforce cannot evolve, progress, change without the support and assistance of men. And so I wanted to create a really inclusive environment. And that's why we don't have an application process. I want people to walk in physically or virtually and feel like this is a space where they can be themselves, thrive, learn, connect, develop. And so when the pandemic hit, we also very quickly had to go online. We've done more than 2,000 events, workshops, programs since March of 2020, and we've now got over 1,500 hours of content from all of these sessions that we've led. We're working with thousands of women around the world and now male allies. So that's the model. And then we work with great corporate members like J.P. Morgan Chase and many others to really invest in the women internally and get them access to, yes, bigger networks, but additional learning outside of what they're getting within their company. And that really provides such a great model for more versus few. So Luminary was pretty new when the pandemic hit, when things were shutting down everywhere and you saw that coming. 
What happened? Tell us about how you had to quickly think about getting out content digitally, doing things differently. Tell us about what happened, whether that was panic and then ultimately pivoting. Well, there was definitely panic, but I think as a business owner, you kind of always have to have a little bit of paranoia because you got to be prepared for everything and you can't prepare yourself for everything. And so that paranoia for me turned into, okay, before we even thought about lockdown, my COO, who's amazing, and I sat down and said, what are our expenses? We got to quickly look at our expenses and where we can cut costs just in case and start making calls. And the first call that I made, as you can imagine, is my landlord. I have a 15,000 square foot space in the central Manhattan. I didn't know if we were going to be closed for two weeks or whatever that would look like. And so that was the first call. And then we literally went down the list of vendors and said, hey, just in case, what can we do here? We want to be a long-term client. That was the first thing. And then on the same day we did all of this expense review, it was like 11 o'clock at night. And I called one of our interns and said, hey, do you know anything about this thing called Zoom? I think we need a Zoom account. And she said, yeah, it's free, but I need your credit card in case it lasts longer than a month. And I said, well, it's not going to last longer than a month. Ha ha. And so we got that set up. And I think it was two days later, we had our first Zoom session. People were already starting to worry, right? And there were people already starting to pull back, especially going into work or into the space. And I also wanted to protect our staff. And so we went online. I remember exactly the title. It was Don't Touch Your Face, Don't Touch Your 401k. And we had, I think, 500 people zoom in. And then we just said, we're just putting everything online. We have to continue to be there for our community. And especially the women that were already seeing this. Kids were the Zoom school, all of the childcare issues. And so that really started it. So we went online before most of our peers. We've continued that to this date and we'll continue it forever because it's part of our model. Did that change what you thought Luminary would be from a local, in-person, always New York dominant business to now really anywhere? Yes. I look back at my original business plan and there was not even a word of digital or virtual. It really was about that physical connection. But what I realized pretty early on in the pandemic was it wasn't about physical. It was about connection. And whether I was on a Zoom screen or our members were on that screen, they needed that and they will always need that. And we've all seen how work has changed that you may one day be in an office, the next day you're at home or our behaviors have changed. And so it is definitely for us coming from a self-funded business thinking I'm going to have to shut down after I lost 80% of my revenue in that first two months of the pandemic to we're five to 10 times bigger than we ever were or would be four years into it. Doesn't mean it's not hard every day, but that accelerated our opportunity. In fact, JP Morgan was one of the first corporate members that reached out and said, hey, we're not at home. All of our people could only take advantage of Luminary in New York. Now they can join from anywhere. And we said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and so then we went out to a lot of our corporate members and said, now your employees anywhere can take advantage of this and men too. And so that really accelerated our B2B model. And now we've got more than 60 companies that we're working with to invest in their pipeline. And then our individual members, sort of whether it's women in corporate, women starting businesses, we know the stats of what the pandemic did to women. And so all of these women that were out of jobs had to leave jobs and even more flexibility. And we're seeing it still today. 
a lot of them needed to start companies. And so that created a very unique opportunity for us to support these business owners that need resources, that need mentorship, that need new connections outside of also needing capital, creating our fellowship program and other opportunities to kind of get the word out and deliver real impact. It's interesting to hear you describe the evolution from the business case to now where you think about where you started was a real workspace, you know, a physical space. And now you talk about community. Your product is community in large part with obviously all of the in-person and virtual pieces to that. What did you learn through the pandemic about the importance of that community? Ever since we launched, I think there's a really easy thing that people do all the time and they compare you to others, right? And so we didn't want to be a traditional workspace. We don't actually consider ourselves a co-working space. We have co-working, that's an amenity. But our goal was to create this community, right? Through content and collaboration and connection. And so for me, it was always about the community. I think I remember the first time I said the word community to the press when we were just launching and they're like, I don't know how you build a community. And that was always our goal, originally just thinking we're going to do this in person and maybe we'll do it eventually outside of New York once we're sustainable and profitable and think about whether we expand. And then for me, I remember thinking no one's going to join a Zoom. Like how do you connect online? And then I realized as a business owner, I needed that too. It wasn't just about the members of my community. It was about my staff. It was about our board members. It was about me needing access to that community. And it is till this day. What I realized very quickly was for women online actually removes a lot of barriers pretty quickly that we may face in a physical space, whether that's your office, et cetera. And so really teaching our community, our women, about how to leverage this virtual world to their advantage has been actually a huge surprise from my side, but also a really unique opportunity for us. I love what you said about having men be part of the solution. And I completely agree with you. We do need men at the table. And I'm glad they are part of your membership and your community. How specifically do you get men involved? What is it that they come in to do or what is it that you ask them to do? I'd really love to hear your thoughts about that. The whole male piece comes back to sort of my career. I kind of got recruited into banking, which was obviously very male dominated. And what I quickly learned was that I needed mentors and sponsors around me. But a lot of that was around just learning right? Because I didn't come from that background. And so really listening to a lot of the men around me and then showing them what I could do. And so very early in that sort of finance career, I started to get mentors. I didn't even know that's what that was, right? This is in the early 2000s. And then when I look back on my banking career, most of, if not all of my mentors were white men and they were in the positions of power. Some of them became sponsors. So as I thought about this business plan, I thought about why I was starting this company. I realized that if I only made it about women, that I was doing exactly what men had been doing because of society, because of history for hundreds of years, right? Making it just about them. And we couldn't create change and we couldn't move the needle. How do we involve them? One, join as a member. The physical space, the virtual community is incredible. Every single man that I know that has been participated in something that we do said, wow, I really felt welcomed here. The second is, wow, I really felt like the only one in the room. Now, when you flip the script on a man like that, and they're surrounded by women, they really feel like what we've felt like 
for many of us around the table and a light bulb goes off. And so they start to think about how they're managing their teams and how they're managing their businesses and how they're mentoring. And then we'll bring men onto panels. We do a lot around male allyship. And one of the biggest things that we've done with our corporate partners is engage men early on. It can't just be the ERG leaders. It's gotta be leaders across all genders and all representation and bringing them on board. And when you get someone and you change their mind, it is remarkable how quickly they start to work for you. The other thing is they start to realize that they've got to do more. And this isn't just women mentoring women. Men have to be mentoring women and men. Men have to be sponsoring both women and men and same with women. So I think you start to build like a ripple effect. And I think that's what we've seen, especially in some of the corporates that we work with, but also individually bringing men in to listen to small business owners and how they struggle without capital and how do we change the dialogue from the fundraising side. And I'm not talking about just venture capital. So that's been for us for me in particular, as a leader, as the founder, knowing what the mentors that I had in my career, by the way, all of them have been to this space. And it's just amazing, but we've got to do a lot of work. And we're almost 50% women of color as far as our membership. And that's so important. We have to have all those voices around the table, including our own, and continue to build transparent, open dialogue. So tell us about a typical day for you as the founder. Maybe there is no such thing as a typical day, but how are you interacting with everyone, especially the members, and how are you ensuring that they're having a great experience? So number one, I get a lot of reach outs from people like, hey, can I have 10 minutes of your time? First of all, it's never 10 minutes. One of the things that I did in my banking career, both at JP Morgan and then at HSBC is I got so many requests. I can't mentor everyone, nor should I. And there are a lot of people that should be out there mentoring. So I started with having group sessions, three, four people in a room and they go, wait, I thought I was just getting you, but you don't just need me. You need to broaden that. And so that was kind of the model at Luminary. And my typical day here is, I come in, if I'm in the space, which is 90% of the time I'm here, if I'm not traveling or meeting with our corporates, I do a combination of virtual sessions to in-person. One of the things that I'm very clear about, any member of our community can have time with me. So if you're a member, you can book time with me. And I want to give our members that time. And I think any member that I know, whether they're sitting in Columbus or Dallas or here in New York, I want to practice what I preach. And so I do a lot of one-on-ones and I do a lot of groups. We have a whole monthly session called the Whisper Network where we get eight to 10 women in a room and it's about mentoring each other, all different backgrounds and perspectives. We sort of curate that. But my days are crazy. I'm just like yours. And it's a lot of meetings and our team has grown from about eight people to over 20 in the last 18 months. So it's also about managing staff and really making sure that our culture stays intact. And so when you also think about the new things that you want to offer to Luminary members and you look at your own roadmap for the next few years, what does that look like? How do you plan to grow and evolve? On our tour right now, so we've hit five cities. That was really to get out and start meeting our members and business owners in cities that we had grown virtually. Chase for Business is a great partner of ours. And we've got, I think, four or five more cities to go this year. 
we'd love to continue that into next year. It has been so transformational to hear what women and men are wanting in these cities. And it's not very different than what they want in New York. But that I think we would want to continue into 2023. We want to double down on the number of companies that we're working with. We see a tremendous value, especially given our price point to support more women and men than less. And we're starting new partnerships. We just kicked off and launched a partnership with Poppy Seed Health, which is all focused around maternal health, everything from egg freezing to fertility to loss. And so thinking about the whole woman versus just the professional woman, we've always thought about the whole woman, but how do we provide more holistic offerings? We're obviously looking at geographically where we would go next if we put down another space. We're also always looking at strategic opportunities as well. We acquired a company in late 2020. And then again, at the end of last year, as I learned at JP Morgan when I joined right before the financial crisis, you invest in a downturn. And I think that's something that I'm always thinking about what's next in this potential economic downturn. So as a sole investor in Luminary, how do you feel about not taking outside investments, not working with any VC venture capitalists? Has that been an overall positive thing? Do you think at some point you would take outside investment? I think it's the same as I say when someone says, would you ever go back to banking? Never say never. This was really important for me to build this business. Barring the fact that we have been in a pandemic, I really wanted to create a sustainable business and profitable. I'm very focused on the profit piece, not just revenue. And it was important for me to invest my own money. And most people will say, well, wow, that's a huge risk. We take risks all the time. Any entrepreneur, you're taking a risk. I wanted to do it with my own money because I wanted to control our outcome. I also wanted to make sure that we were super focused on the community and not just growth. There's a huge benefit in raising money and taking outside capital. You can grow faster, you can scale faster. But for me, this was the decision that I took and it's worked for us for the last couple of years, always open to conversations. We bring a lot of venture capitalists and firms into the space and into the community to talk to founders. I think the biggest thing for me is what do you need the money for? Everyone says I need to raise money. Okay, how much do you need to raise if you don't have financial projections and you don't have a plan? Why do you need to raise? What are you going to do with the money? And so I think that's changing right now. I feel like the media has really sensationalized raising money, and that's the only measure of success. By the way, that's not a measure of success. That's just a measure. I talk to a lot of business owners and founders about profitability, and I think that's where we have to really get back to. And that's my banker in me, right? It's how are you going to pay me back that money? And if you're not profitable, it's going to be tough to pay me back. So I'm curious on your views on the issues and obstacles women face. You were in the corporate world for a very long time, so you saw various things that way. And now you're out there talking to so many women in different sectors and in the virtual way. Have you learned anything new about what women's challenges are, or have you been surprised or challenged by what they're now saying? Yeah, I don't know if it's anything new. It's interesting. I get questioned a lot by the media around, well, what are the topics that are coming up for women? It's the same topics. It's access to mentorship, sponsorship, compensation, being fairly compensated. One of the things that I've been talking about lately that I think is going to have a huge impact, not just for sort of my generation, but the generations beyond is capacity constraints. We hear a lot about burnout, and I'm not a huge fan of that term. What I see more is capacity issues. 
women in particular are constantly being told, do a great job. That's how you're going to get paid. And that's how you're going to get promoted. But at the same time, you better find mentors. You need more sponsors. You need to have a bigger network. You need to invest in your skills. All of these things that we have to do. And by the way, if you're a working mother or a caregiver, that further restricts your capacity. So now we're in this new world of some people are figuring out, this is my commute. I have to add that back in. I have to figure out childcare, which for a lot of people doesn't exist anymore. And so this capacity issue for me, as I talk to our business owners, but more importantly, our women in corporate is coming up as the number one issue that women are facing. I just don't know how I can fit it all in. And if we don't carve out time for ourselves, how are we able to accomplish all of the things that we're setting out for ourselves? And I really think this is a bigger issue than people are talking about. It's not just burnout. Go on a vacation, everyone says, take a sabbatical. But those same capacity issues are there regardless. This capacity issue is so interesting. And I think many women probably felt to their max capacity before the pandemic, but something seems to have happened over the last few years. It could have been childcare that just hasn't come back the same way. It could have been women weren't commuting as much and they saw what that extra time did for them or now flexibility is something that they really value. Now, why do you think capacity is even more of an issue now? What changed maybe permanently that women have to deal with? Even with people coming back into an office, the flexibility that remote offers and hybrid, I still think there's a time management issue. There are no boundaries anymore, right? We're sitting in our apartments or our homes, wherever we are. We could go on vacation and someone says, well, you can just Zoom. And so there's really no boundaries. There's very little break. And you know, you go from Zoom to Zoom to maybe an in-person meeting back to Zoom to Zoom. There is a very little amount of that giving time for ourselves to think, that collaboration piece. But the other thing that I'm seeing, and as a senior woman, you're a senior woman, everyone has to be a leader as a woman. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of women, yes, that absolutely want to climb the ladder, sell their business, do as much as they possibly can. I think we're making women feel guilty if they are not on that path. And I was with a group of women a few weeks ago that are in an executive MBA program. And many of them said, I'm really comfortable in my role. I love my job. I just want to be fairly compensated. I want to have access to opportunities, but I don't want to have the top job. And I feel like everyone's telling me that's what I have to get to. It's the same for business owners, right? Why aren't you raising, Kate? Why aren't you expanding? When are you scaling? There's this insane amount of pressure, in particular on women. I think there's a big double standard. What about solopreneurs, right? There 80% of small businesses are solopreneurs. Why is that a bad thing? They're making a business. They're making a living. But I do think from capacity all the way to this immense amount of pressure that everyone has to be in the C-level, absolutely need more women in the sea level Part of what we do is that, but not everybody should be at that level and nor do they want to be. And I think we have to sort of bring back some levity around, you can still have a phenomenal career and still invest in your skills and still get paid and still do well at your definition of success. I love that. I think it comes back to 
your definition of success, what success can look like. There's more than one way, but let's not confuse that with ambition because I think women still have ambition. They have ambition for, again, a level of success that works for them. And all these studies that show women are not as ambitious as men, I really wonder, is it because they're not as ambitious to make the sacrifice and trade-offs that they think is required? They're not ambitious to, as you say, reach their breaking point for capacity. Maybe they're ambitious for, again, a different model of success. In one of my big banking jobs, I was out on a sort of a listening tour for some of my teams. And I went and I visited one of our satellite offices. It was a global role. And one of the guys, I did a lot of one-on-ones and he was a banker, an individual contributor. And the first thing he said to me, and I use he, white male, he said, listen, Kate, I'm going to give you consistent doubles, but I'm never really going to hit a grand slam. And I walked out of that meeting going, who would say that to their big, big boss? But then I took a step back and I started watching his performance. And he was hitting consistent doubles and there were no dips in his performance. He constantly performed. He just wasn't knocking it out of the park. I thought, okay, at the end of that year, by the way, he was one of my top performers because he was a consistent performer. If a woman ever said that, it would be, she doesn't want to be the best. She's not ambitious. It's not okay for anyone to say that. And I fell victim to that. I immediately thought, I don't know if I want him on that team. But then I watched and I took that step back. And I think most women that I know are very driven and ambitious. They want to feel valued. They want to be acknowledged. They want to be recognized. They want to be paid. And they want to be able to have opportunities. It goes back to capacity, right? It's like we have to do so much all the time. And I think we have this incredible sense of guilt if we're not meeting everyone else's standards. And we are such a proud partner of yours. We are running that race with you and really love everything that you've been doing. So thank you so much for speaking with us and for doing all of this fantastic work. No, thank you. And we really appreciate and value not only the J.B. Morgan Chase partnership, but all of the employees that we get to work with, as well as the business owners and your clients, part of that ecosystem, right? We're, we're helping create change together. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Kate Luzio. Kate is a catalyst for change in the workplace as she works to help women advance their personal and professional growth. I hope that you're inspired by the lessons that she shared, like involving men in the gender equality journey and defining what success looks like on your own terms. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.